loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming back Megan Rorden Jarvis. Megan's a podcast host, two-time TEDx speaker, and psychotherapist specializing in trauma and grief and loss. After experiencing PTSD following the deaths of both of her parents, Megan founded Tacking Point Partners to support companies addressing complex emotions like grief in the workplace. Megan's podcast, Grief is My Side Hustle, I'm happy to say I've been on that podcast, delightedly, and writing through trauma workshops could be found at her website, www.meganrordanjarvis.com, that's M-E-G-H-A-N, R-I-O-R-D-A-N-G-J-A-R-V-I-S.com. Megan's memoir, End of the Hour, is available for pre-order with Zibby Books and comes out November 14th, 2023. She's currently at work on any, Can Anyone Tell Me Why? Essential Questions About Grief and Loss, published with Sounds True Media in 2024. She lives in Maryland with her husband, their three children, and a vast collection of Legos covering most surfaces of their house. Welcome back, Megan. Cheryl, <laughs> thank you so much for having me back. I'm so happy to be here. That last uh, Legos all over the house. I have grandchildren who are fanatics, and whew, when they had a a baby, much after the two older kids, all the Legos had to go in their room. Contraband. That's right. We had during the pandemic, my sister worked for a company that sold Lego. And so she would get it at a discount, send it to my kids. I have three kids. And most of it was like Harry Potter, like big, expensive, difficult ones. And then we basically began sort of a black market trade in our neighbor, in our neighborhood. Um, once we were done, the kids would take it apart and then hand it to another family and they would do it and then take it apart and then hand it to another family. So we have a little, a swap that goes on here with Legos, but that has not stopped every bookshelf surface countertop, every muffin tin. It's all filled with Legos. And you would maybe think that we're not talking about grief, but the thing about grief is life keeps going on. It sure does. It sure does. It sure does. And and them wanting to use little, you know, bricks to build castles while we weren't allowed to go outside seemed like pretty reasonable adaptive behavior. Absolutely. So um, obviously the last time we were together on, I don't remember if it was your or my podcast. I know. I know. I don't either. um, One or the other. uh, You had not... Either you weren't finished writing your book or you hadn't written it, um, but certainly it was not about to be published. So congratulations. Thank you. Thanks. It has been a long road. 
getting here and it feels crazy to the thing that feels the craziest is that you can pre-order it on Amazon and like the blurbs are up and it actually doesn't physically exist yet. I've learned so much about how books are made and how they are printed and all of those things. But yeah, it's wild to be, you know, at the cusp of all of all of that hard work about to, you know, be an actual thing. Giving birth. Yeah, something like that. Something I think this is way harder than I mean I, you know, I spent hours and hours and hours and hours deciding what to write and deciding what to cut. I I was pretty passive about the growing a baby and giving birth. I had C-sections, so I didn't even labor those babies out. Um yeah, but it is it's a really exciting time right now. And for for those get those listeners who have not heard our other hours, yeah. I think we should start at the beginning. Um, well, the beginning is never the beginning. There's always something before that. Mm-hmm. But uh, with you, I'd say the beginning is losing both your parents. Yeah. But then the beginning before that is losing someone important in your childhood. So can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about? Um, those experiences, how they led to writing, not just your career, but also writing about what happened and um, kind of, yeah. You know, so I think people come to writing memoir for different reasons, but I think most memoirs have an element of loss inside them. I think they all are sort of grief stories. Maybe that's the mechanism in order to make them compelling enough for someone to want to pick up, but I think they really are, you know, a story of some kind of transformation. So when I started writing, I wasn't writing a memoir. I was still deep in grief. My my dad had died of um, small cell cancer a year after he had been diagnosed. So his death was really sad and hard, but it wasn't traumatic. We knew it was coming you know, the the metaphor that I use is like, it was like the information was given to me, you know, every week, a cup of bad news. And so by the time he died, I had sort of ingested all of this accumulation of bad news. My mom died two years after my dad, after a short illness that we never really um, were able to or chose to know specifically what killed her. But she died in her sleep, and that was like being forced to drink a gallon of water in, you know, one second. And my my system really went haywire. And there are lots of, you know, in everybody's individual grief story, there are a lot of reasons why the certain things are hard, and there's a lot of reasons why people make the choices that they make. For me... The minute I knew that my mother died, I had sort of like this metacognition, this like observing part of me that knew this was going to be bad, that it was already bad, that the first thought I had after she died, after I learned that she died, which, you know, I learned that she died because I felt it in my body. I called my husband and said, hey, I think you better go check on her because I was away from the house. And then he called me back to tell me that she had died. But my very first thought was, it's your fault she died. And I have treated people for decades 
who have that kind of ruminative thinking. That's what we call that sort of circular idea. And so I had this like clinician's mind, like, uh uh-oh, you know, that's not good. Like a doctor who, you know, they feel a lump. They're like, wait. So the writing of the story really came from going into treatment because I checked myself into inpatient treatment because my symptoms did in fact get much worse very fast. And, And by that, just for the audience to hear, what I mean is I all but stopped eating. I had no hunger and I could not force my body to eat food. I was sleeping maybe three hours a night and not three hours at a time. I was really irritable. Like it felt like someone had taken a grater and sort of grated my skin, like to touch me. My skin hurt. Um, I had headaches and I felt really disoriented, like actually physically dizzy. I just couldn't, my mind could not alight on anything that made sense. So, and and I was saying a minute ago, um, I was having another conversation. I was saying that I um, I have heard lots of moms in particular say, you know, well, I couldn't fall apart because my kids were there. Well, I couldn't fall apart either. And my kids were there and I did. I couldn't stop it. So part of the reason I tell I have written the story is because I do think it's probably interesting to hear that even when you have two master's degrees and all the clinical experience and children who you are who are supposed to be the driver to keep you from falling to pieces is not a guarantee. So I started writing really so that I could carry my narrative, so that the story was something that I could tolerate. So mostly, you know, I have the same journal. I should have brought it down. Um, I bought, I don't know, 30 of the same journal from Target. And I just fill them. I just finished one today. I just write and write and write. And sometimes it's a letter to my mom. Sometimes um, it's ideas about things that I want to write about. But generally what I am trying to do is make sense of myself in this life that I, I lost the handrails from. And, and, and then the, you know, I think I've said to you before, I teach a class, which is called writing from process to product. So the process is you're writing so that you can carry your own narrative. When I got to treatment, I couldn't even say my mom died. I couldn't even say those words. Um, but but now I can, and now I can say, you know, uh, give a little nugget of what my experience was. Um, but and you much- need to say it over and over again because of the work you do. <laughs> I do. I do. Right. I mean, I do. And, and it's important because trauma in trauma work, we want to be really careful not to just tell a story over and over again, because it can reactivate your system and make you sick. Um, but when we're, when we are carrying our narrative, we are coming up with a story and a, and a description of a story that's manageable and that makes sense to us and that we can find ourselves in instead of disrupts our system and totally overwhelms us. You know, one thing that really stood out reading the memoir, um, what we share is working with grief and loss, right? And the the most frequent question I get when people find out what I do is, oh, does that make grief easier? Yeah, as if, I wish. As if, and my my frequent answer or probably universal answer is, no, I just know I have to do it. 
Yeah. I mean, people ask me that question a lot. And what I say is what was easier was understanding how sick I was. Unlike my other patients who would bear with, it's so heartbreaking to me to have someone come and say, I haven't slept for two years. You know, I, I only had my really profound symptoms for three months. And when you don't sleep for two years, that is not the only thing that's wrong with you. You know, it, you get sick. Yeah. That's its own problem at that point. But I, but I do appreciate also talking with you about differentiating because you differentiated your dad's death was not traumatic. Your mother's death was. Interestingly, my wife's death was not traumatic. I remember you telling me that story. My father's death was a traumatic death, but I was not traumatized. Yep. My mother's death, she almost died two years earlier. That would have been traumatic. That was horrendous, but she lived weirdly. When she actually died, not a trauma. So I could probably say I have not experienced a death trauma. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? And and would those have been traumatizing without the first experience? Who could know? Right. there really is a difference, isn't there? There, there is, and there's a clinical difference. So, and I, and I use this, I use the pandemic as an example, which is like the pandemic was a, you know, an event, a period of time that was absolutely traumatic, meaning it had like an impact that interrupted the flow of everyone's lives. There wasn't a person that was not impacted. But that doesn't mean everyone was traumatized because traumatized is the impact of the trauma on you. Mm -hmm. And traumatized means something about it overwhelmed your central nervous system. So your ability to think, your ability to be inside your body. And what, what seems to be true is that for people who have had childhood trauma that was left unresolved, meaning the energy stayed inside the body and what children do when something bad happens, mostly because they don't have the intellectual capacity to do anything else, is they make it about them. So the bad thing that happens to them becomes who they are. And Many, many, many children don't e- won't even vocalize that. They don't have a way of sort of expressing it. And so when something bad happens, it is traumatizing to them because adults don't necessarily know how to su- come in and support and sort of help move that energy through them. It becomes a definition sort of of their life. And I did have, when I was nine, a teenager whose name was Chris, who was beloved to my family so we call his family cousins. He drowned while my family was on the beach and we didn't notice. He was 16. We weren't attending to him. He was swimming on his own. Um, and we don't know why he drowned. There wasn't you know, any contusion. He didn't hit anything. But it happened during the summer where my family, I have five brothers and sisters, where we spent our summers in this very rustic little town. Um, and then it happened July 26th. And then we were we were back in our other life at the very end of August. So we were separated from all the other people who had been impacted, as was everybody, because it's sort of a, you know, a summering town where people come from all over. And because it was 1983, my mother really believed the best thing to do was not talk about it. 
And so she didn't tell the my teachers. There wasn't a school counselor. And so what I had was all of these terrifying ideas and feelings about teenagers dying. Whereas other kids were like, I want a beanie baby or whatever. I was sort of like, I hope my older brother doesn't die. So that, I I did a lot of therapy. And I did actually come to really deeply understand a lot about how that impacted me. But there were for sure sort of glass shards stuck in my foot that came up after my mom died suddenly. That absolutely, I still, even though I was nine, held myself accountable for not realizing Chris had died. We prayed after his death. My mother had us say the rosary. I was nine. I didn't know the rosary. And so I took on some of the responsibility, like maybe maybe the rosary is like a magic potion and I didn't know the right words. And so this is, none of that is logical. And I maybe even understood at the time it wasn't logical, but I still believed it. And a lot of that came up when I was grieving my mom's death. And again, I have the neuroscience background to understand that our brain categorizes shared experiences like experiences go in the same file folders. So deaths, you know, whether it's your grandfather or your boss or, you know, I don't know, a celebrity, it all kind of goes in the same drawer. And some of that really did come up after my mom died. And so I had to I had to address that in the present moment, and I had to address some of my relationship with my childhood self way back then. I didn't get enough support as an adult when my mom died. I didn't get enough support when I was a child. As an adult, it was kind of my responsibility to get myself support. As a child, it really wasn't. It really wasn't. You know, we're almost out of out of time. We're about to go to a break, but uh, what stands out is the impact of guilt on grief. Um, to me, it it is logical to have guilt immediately because it's easier to manage. That's it's right. Graspable, right? But if it if it hangs on to you and takes you by the throat, it it can be so crushing. So when we come back, I want to really talk about that. That's great. Let's talk about that. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. You can follow me on Instagram, like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, connect on LinkedIn, you know, all that stuff. And stay tuned for TikTok. I'm I'm about to launch. Oh, my goodness. You modern times lady. (laughs) Sign up for my email list to stay up to date. And to find Megan Jarvis, go to www.meganrordanjarvis.com. Be back soon. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. 
Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Megan Rorden Jarvis, uh, launching, hopefully being an interview she can help launch her book with, End of the Hour, about her um, parents' death and and, um, the crisis that she went into as a result. So before the break, Megan, I was saying I really wanted to talk with you about guilt. You brought it up. Um, it's so, first of all, it's almost universal, um, in early grief. Yes. In my experience, if I see someone in early grief, they're going to tell me they did something wrong. Yeah. And I understand that, you know, it's, it's kind of easier to grasp or grapple with, but I think you'd agree. And I'd like you to talk about some when those thoughts, I should have done more, I didn't do enough, um, I didn't appreciate any form of guilt, yeah, uh, how it erodes the person uh, over time. Yeah. And, yeah. Pretty, and not that far in, it starts to be erosive, don't you think? I I do. So I think I think you you sort of started to say this, which is but let, let's um let's say it like this to begin with just for in case people don't know these sort of clinical definitions the guilt is i have done something wrong shame is i am something wrong there is something wrong with me i think guilt and regret are a very fine razor edge of sort of two different sides of the same coin you know guilt is i wish i could i wish i had done something differently and regret is often i wish i'd done something differently but they have a different sort of tone to them and what i'll say is that even when the very first thought was i am at fault for my mother's death i also had a part of me that knew that was not the case and 
I had a part of me that was like, oh yeah, this is the thing that the little engine that I can distract myself with, maybe forever. I can just feel bad about everything that I didn't do or I wish I had done. And then I won't ever have to feel all these other more terrifying feelings about how am I going to live in a life without this person who has been a tether for the every single minute of every single day that I have been alive. So there are many people, Mary Frances O'Connor talks about this in her book. Um, Dr. Tracy Shores talks about it in her book. But these guilt ruminations are a bit like walking around a track, just walking in a circle. They're not bringing you any new data. So, you know, when we're worried about something, the word worry essentially means you are moving towards resolution. So if you're worried about something, I need new tires on my car, the likelihood is that worry is going to drive the impetus to get new tires on your car. Guilt does not do that. Guilt produces nothing. It just (laughs) walks you in a circle. You just gave me a little bit of a different perspective because I was so surprised with myself that when my wife died, I didn't feel guilty. Yeah. But but I think you just explained it. We spent 10 years learning to have the feelings. That's right. So I just went straight to having the feelings, whatever they were at the moment, of course, but I wasn't afraid of them. Right. Well, and in your instance, you you were a caretaker for such a long time. One thing that I'm sure you hear and I hear is that people will talk about being relieved when their ill person dies and then feeling guilty about being relieved. That there's a element. For her, I, I was relieved for her. I wouldn't say relief was a big quality in my grief either. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but again, there's nothing, there's nothing that we get to assume is a quality in any person's. What I often say to folks is, I'm not telling you how it is. I'm just telling you how I've heard it's been for other people. And when we talk about all of the things that people can say are true for them in grief, you just know that there is all kinds of possibility of feeling that doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make your thoughts true. So what's interesting, if you think about that, we are generally beings that have thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, and maybe somebody would argue also a spiritual center. If you are over behaving, if you are overdoing, you're just doing, 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 that is a good indicator that you may be distracting from some thinking and some feeling. If you are overthinking, you may be distracting from some feeling and some doing. If you are overfeeling, you may be distracting from some thinking and some doing. And I, the, the guilt process, like if we think about it from internal family systems have, is this idea of like a whole bunch of parts of you that are all really there to take care of you. When something terrible happens and all of a sudden in runs this voice that says, well, it's because you didn't do something right. It, that's a terrible voice, but it may be a caretaking voice. It may be a distracting sleight of hand, look over here, magician, that is assuming. I'll just distract you over here. Yeah, assuming that you're not going to be able to handle the emotions or maybe even the tasks. 
that are gonna now. And I've seen that happen to people. I have seen people collapse under all of the funeral arrangements, all of, you know, being the executor of an estate that things just languish and they're not able to do it. And I have seen people collapse into feeling, which is essentially what happened to me and not be able to get themselves out. The thinking, walk around in a circle, feel bad, feel guilty, believe that you should have done something differently. Most of the time when I ask folks, And what would have happened if you didn't go to the bathroom? Or what would have happened if you had taken a left turn instead of a right turn? Even they don't really believe that there would have been another possible outcome. They want to believe it. Everyone will always want to believe it. But in my story, there isn't a different version that I can come up with where I could have saved my mother's life. But holy moly, would I like to have had that power? And that's really what we're looking at is, do we have the power? Do we have the capacity? The other reality there is really taking in that it's over. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard to take that in. And the fact is the person died, right? Whether, Whether it could have been different or it couldn't have been different is beside that point in a way. It, it has happened. That is the story. And I, I find that's really hard to grapple with for lots of people to just say, okay, what actually happened is this person beloved to me died. That's what happened, no matter what the story was along the way. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I say this a lot. Like, I know my mother died. I absolutely know she is dead, but I still can't believe it sometimes. I mean, I just had up on my Instagram, like a full on temper tantrum of how sick and tired I was of not hearing her voice. And a little part of me is like, but maybe I will, maybe she'll call. So, so that, you know, you and I both know there's no stages of grief, but most people who do sort of academic work around grief do talk about acceptance as being a really important and significant part. And again, The neuroscientist Mary Frances O'Connor talks about it takes a while for your brain to actually learn that this person isn't there. And also, and I don't mean this strictly speaking in a in a spiritual sense. Yeah. But there is a way in which it's not true. Yeah. When it comes to the body, it's totally true. Yes, that's right. It's it's a hundred. A hundred percent true physically. Yeah, that's right. We're still carrying a person inside of them. It's hard to believe that. Yeah. It's so interesting because, you know, I, I, I talk about this and end of the hour when I started writing it, I was really not in a space where I could hear people say things like, oh, but your mother knows that you got a book deal or, um, you know, just talk to your parents. They'll, they're still there like that. Mo- I mean, honestly, most of the time I, I would say directly to people, like, I don't really believe that. So it's not helpful to me because part of my job as a griever was just, you know, try to let myself be seen as I was. I do actually feel different about that now. It still makes me uncomfortable, but you know, the quantum physics are that energy is not destroyed. So the body may be destroyed, but the energetics of the person is out there somewhere in the world. But I, but even though that's true, 
there is an edge of pain inside the reality, which is I would like my people in their bodies, in on the earth, in their place. Whatever my, your, anyone's spiritual perspective, I'm really not talking about that. Yeah. I'm talking about, and, you know, most of the time when people say those things, it's because they don't want to feel your pain. Right. And that was way too early. All of that, right? But the fact is, you have memories of your mother, you yeah. have things you wish you could say to her. Maybe you say them sometimes. I do all the time. I say things to my people. We yeah. see the relationship aspect that didn't die with any of those people for me. But it's where, still- I, where I think this gets tricky for my clients and where it gets tricky for me is when someone loses a child. Because, you know, my mom was 75 when she died. So she had a fully, like she, ha- she had an identified political party. She had made all kinds of, but, but even still people, people often will sort of use that phrase of like, well, you know how they would react or, you know, what they would say. And there is truth in that. And also my mom surprised the crap out of me sometimes with what she would say and how, but where I think there's a lot of pain in that, the like the idea that in the memory of them, you carry them with you is when people lose children because that they are not formed in the way in which you dreamed for them to be. And I think part of the pain is that what you have lost is their whole future, the whole joy of what they were going to become. And that what you are left with is just like nowhere near enough time, right? So I I like that phrase and I a little bit, it, it has like never exactly worked for me. Like, and, and again, I, I often wonder if this is because I don't maybe, I really believe in the idea of a grief practice. I really believe in every day spending time with my grief and asking it kind of how it wants to be attended to that day. And sometimes it wants me to yield to just sort of sitting on the couch and, and being, and other times it wants me to be on a podcast or, but I really feel like my grief and I know each other pretty well. What I think for me is tricky is that I don't know that that idea of continuing bonds where I'm like kind of still having a relationship with someone, even though they're not here. I am not great at that. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't say out loud to my mom, like, Oh, look at that, you know, blue flower. You would love to see that. I more, I more am oriented towards the loss of her still. And I'm like, shit, I wish she was here to see that flower. Mm-hmm. So I think that that might be partly the work I'm still in. I'm, I think I might still be either trying to grow that or maybe it's not going to grow. I'm not sure. Or it's not for you. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd like it. I would like it. It sounds better. <laughs> but it doesn't work as an avoidance of anything. No. Truth. I mean, whether you have it or you don't have it, it doesn't replace anything. That's such an important thing. I had a client who had a devastating loss. You know, a young person died in their sleep of a healthy, you know, that had been otherwise healthy. And it was really shocking to the whole community. And my client was just bereft. 
And what she said was, why is everyone running around and starting a foundation in our friend's name? Like, why is everyone doing a GoFundMe? Why, you know, she had, she was on her 10th day of crying. And what I said was, you know, it's a fight, flight, freeze sort of response when you don't know how to do feeling. So if you are someone who says, I'm going to just go right into the feeling like you described with your wife's death, then you kind of get to be in the present moment as it is. But there are so many of us that are like, I am not going to be in this present moment, but I am going to raise a million dollars for cancer research, (laughs) which is, you know, that's better than something destructive, but it's still avoidance. Anything, we can take anything and use it as an avoidance technique. In the course of the pandemic, I, I, well, it happened at, it started germinating when Trump was elected, but it, it developed yep. over um, that there were four things we needed to do. We needed to feel feelings. Mm-hmm. We needed solace and comfort. We needed to find inspiration and we, we needed to take action. But the most important thing was to do the right one at the right time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? and, and the hardest job to figure out job to figure out do i need to raise a million dollars or do i need to cry all day you know there's a really big difference uh and uh, I, I think it really shows you know that concept even that phrase of feeling feelings every time i use that phrase you know there's in every in everybody's job there's lexicon there's words that sort of like make sense in your world that maybe don't if you're not in the in that um and feel the feelings is one that I will always get it. Like, what does that even mean? Feel the feelings. Like, what do you even mean is that? And I do, I do think that the idea of sort of slowing down is really critical to all of the things that you might discover are needed in grief and loss. I was really surprised to discover that suddenly I had become a writer. I mean, I was not a writer my whole life. Most of the people that I spend time with that I talk to who are writers start with the sentence, I knew I wanted to be a writer since I was in fifth grade. And that is not who I am. (laughs) That's not me either. But I, but writing is a tool. There's a lot of neuroscience about why it helps actually your brain to rewire and fire again after a trauma, that language is the way that we get to understand both ourselves and express ourselves to other people. So I do think it was an instinctive response. And I think, you know, if you're able to kind of slow down in grief, I think of myself kind of coaching my clients, like, what does it feel like maybe you want to do? Let's come back and talk to, to the question of how you feel the feelings and what helps and all that after our next break. Okay. Great. Listeners, again, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief Voice America to do all the things we do these days. There's always a new one. Sign up for my email list too to keep up to date. And to find Megan Jarvis, go to MeganRordonJarvis.com. Be back soon. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. 
That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health and Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Megan Rorden Jarvis about her book, End of the Hour, and uh, very delightedly, it's so nice to have you back. Uh, before the break, um, what I said I wanted to talk about a little more fully is the phrase, have the feelings. Yeah. Because there are so many different, I, I notice that often when I say that to clients, they, they come back with thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. And, Absolutely. And forget the thoughts, have the feelings in your body. Yeah. But we are not, we don't, I mean, I think we maybe are teaching kids to do that now, but I don't know that we have been for a long time. And certainly as a therapist, you know, I came into my job and was taught a lot about sort of cognition and how insight could change um, behaviors. and. I tried that for a long time and then learned that, you know, we have a lot of data and a lot of experience 
experiential data that is telling us really that what makes and creates change is for people to be able to feel the possibility of it and then to feel that change inside their body. And so feel the feelings, even in that, I feel like misses a step because our systems, our bodies are these, you know, unbelievably fine-tuned, reactive, energetic things, filters. And part of what we have first are, what we experience first are emotions. And the emotions are just these little subconscious. You don't know what they are. They're just zooming through your body. And we, I I don't know, the number of how many we have is like 86,000 a day. Like it's so many. So we are emotive first. And so being able to say, I don't know, I feel irritable. That is an indication that you are at least aware that you are having emotions zooming through you. We translate that into feeling when we bring them into consciousness and we try to we try to say what they are. So I'm sad or I'm angry or I'm frustrated or I'm disappointed. And the thing is, our ability to translate those little electrical currents that run through us into feelings is not awesome. We are not awesome at, and we do not always get that right. And it is startling for even me as a therapist, how often I don't get that right. And then there are people who were conditioned as children to, to be disconnected from their feeling states. There wasn't room inside their family system. There was neglect. There was mental health issue. And so that child having any sort of emotional need, physical need, was not going to be welcome. And so they learned to sort of disconnect from that. Also, the biggest problem I find with people just having an honest physical feeling is their judgment that they shouldn't be having it. You know, and that that comes from nobody really affirming your right to have them. That's right. right. It's actually, even as a, I'm sure you'll agree, even as a uh, emotionally intelligent parent, boy, it's hard to make room for all the feelings all the time. Oh my gosh. I have a 13 year old right now. That's killing me. He's just killing me with his like wakes up in a bad mood. And I'm like, can we just not with this today? Can you, can you just take your hormones somewhere else? So how do we then learn that it's okay? Right. Yeah. So, you know, I think, I think the thing that I have found the most powerful in my work with clients is to be curious. So if we can take the, the, like you can come back in and judge yourself after, but can we just try to be Sherlock Holmes and get as many clues as possible my from your system, right? <laughs> when when people are overwhelmed, I use that word a lot. And I say, you know what? It's okay. We, we're not going to do anything. We're not going to change anything. We're not going to shift anything. Like, can we just take stock? Like, imagine if we're just sort of like laying out all the crayons. Can we just like see what colors are here? Are there a lot of blue? Is there a lot of green? Like what? And I have a million metaphors. But generally, I do use some sort of mindfulness practice. And I want to distinguish that from meditation because I think people conflate the two. Mindfulness just really is 
being in the present moment, tools to be in the present moment. Meditation is one of those tools, but for a lot of people who are grieving, doing a meditative practice of stillness can really feel impossible and and induce panic. Mindfulness practice doesn't have to, there, there are lots, you can walk, you can talk, you can laugh and be mindful, but the idea is just getting a sense of what's going on inside you. And so a mindfulness practice that I love to do is I say, let's pretend that I have a can of magnetic paint and it is going to attract itself anywhere there is a concentration of energy inside your body. I'm going to pour it from the top of your head. And I just want you to notice anywhere the magnets happen. And then once we go and I sort of guide people, like just down the paint's going down your shoulders, it's going down your chest, you know, just that alone, their tolerance of just pausing and thinking about their body and the energy inside their body, that already is, is setting us up to feel the feelings. I really, the, oh, you know, I think I'm angry in my stomach. Like, don't even name it. We don't even have to do that. What does it feel like? Is it big? Is it small? Is it heavy? It, does it have a color? Does it move? Is it old? Is it new? Just as much detail as you can give me. Often, if we do that slow enough, there will be some piece of information that does feel salient and important. And that that is feeling your feelings. It's feeling the inside of you where your feelings reside. Megan, I've been enjoying talking with you so much. I realize I have not invited you to share a bit of the book so people can. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. You know what? Can I, let me pull it up. I put it somewhere. Um, Let me see if I can grab it. And I would love to do that. Um, Of course, it's not exactly where it's supposed to be. So different from our speaking voice, isn't it? Right? (laughs) Ask me another question while I'm looking for this. Oh, another, you can do both at once. I can't. Well, my computer's been like a little grumpy with me today. So even though I put everything where it was supposed to be, um, okay, I think it's right here. Here it is. Okay. Okay. So if you're good, I'm going to read just the prologue. This is how the book starts. These are the first couple of chapters. The old enormous door was a throwback to days of grandeur, the age when a woman in a hoop skirt clutched a cold glass of sweet tea and glistened delicately behind a flittering fan. I was not that woman. Instead, I stood with sweat pooling at the waistband of the leggings I hadn't changed in days, staring at the door knocker waiting for it to open. I'd had barely enough strength to remain upright, let alone walk through the door. For the sake of simplicity, I described it as trauma camp when I told my kids I'd be leaving for three weeks. The driver, whose name I'd been given twice but still could not remember, walked past me and pushed open the door. She wandered farther into the entrance, calling out, hello, hello, she's here, then gestured to the right before leaving me standing awkwardly in the oversized sitting room. My eyes fell on the three large, well-worn leather couches surrounding the giant hearth. A stone chimney extended the height of a vaulted ceiling. My nose caught familiar undertones of pine ash and smoke, but my mind couldn't catch the memory. Despite my exhaustion and all the ample available cushions, I did not think to sit down. A tall, beautiful woman with Botticelli hair swept through the space. 
I wondered if her red and black flannel lumberjack shirt was some kind of uniform. Do you want to see D? She pulled a slim square from a full shoebox and smiled warmly and pressed the gift into my hand. I'd learn later that music played a big part in her life. I'm Hope. Hope. I quietly echoed her name. She smiled again. I'm so glad you're here. There was that same oddly disconcerting phrase the driver had used after I barely managed the kindergarten task of recognizing my own name on the small whiteboard she'd held at the arrivals gate. Over the next three weeks, I would come to understand those words as the unofficial mantra of the facility, passed from one patient to the next, I'm so glad you're here, was intended as a gift, the belief that this was the place where one might be able to heal. A tiny woman with white anime pixie cut and a voice of a lifelong smoker found me next. She may have said her name was Anne, but I didn't use it just in case. Gentle but assertive, Anne ushered me into a small office where I experienced instant deja vu. At the sight of her plush blue bucket chair, high shine, white lacquer, chinoiserie desk, faux marble side table, and brass colored floor lamp that pitched light to the ceiling in a fan shape that made me dizzy. I took the seat that Anne offered, searching desperately for my memories that my mind refused to release. My eye finally landed on a kicked up corner of the rug under the desk, and the name of a popular home store was visible. Like drawers clicking shut, I recognized the decor as a replica of a catalog cover from a few months back. My breath returned. Reality had felt tenuous for days. Finally, here were some docks I could connect. We just redecorated, Anne said, and followed my gaze. Her silver bracelets jangled as she administered my breathalyzer. I don't really drink, I offered stupidly as if she could take my word for it. She asked about my current medications and thoughts of suicide. None, I said to either. Anne sat down behind her computer and smiled as she finger-picked her way through paperwork I'd apparently forgotten to send in days prior. I watched as her smile drooped eyes narrowing in confusion. This is unusual. She cocked her head and gave me a side glance. The inside of my head throbbed as I turned towards her dangling sentence. We have more than 20 people in our system with files connected to your name. Are they clinicians? Do you want your case notes sent to them? She drew the last few syllables out with suspicion. Words abandoned me. I nursed my confusion in silence. Anne tapped on the screen and, as if to offer an explanation, squinted and began to read out the list. I did not stop her. Like a library's catalog, card catalog, each name referenced someone I had once helped into the same seat where I now sat trying to put words to my symptoms of pain and trauma. In a matter of seconds, I had transformed from a clinician with an intellectual understanding into a woman of embodied knowing. I shook my head in a small but not quite embarrassed no. As a therapist specializing in trauma, I didn't have the imagination to even wonder what my patients would think if they knew I was there. Glad you shared because I love the voice of the book and I'm glad people got to hear it a little bit before we left. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you so much for being with me. I've enjoyed it as always. Such a delight. You can find Megan at MeganRodenJarvis.com. Next week, I'll have Donna Stoneham to talk about her book, Catch Me When I Fall. It tells the story of the healing that happened at the end of her mother's life and after. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. 
Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.